Sunday school, and I said, there is Sunday school this Sunday, and I need you guys to come with me because mom and the two older sisters are on the coast for graduation ceremonies and stuff, and, and Braden was... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we got, he's 10, so we got like four years of that sweet spot left. Um, we are re-engaging our series through the book of Samuel. First and second Samuel are really one book. They're just two in our English Bibles because the scrolls were so massive, they couldn't put the whole thing on one scroll. So there's the first scroll and the second scroll, first Samuel, second Samuel, but it's one unified story. We're in chapter 16 this morning. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there, or it is on the, the notes. Here's a really high-level recap of where we've been. This, uh, this kind of story in Samuel opens up at the end of the time of Judges, and uh, it, it, it talks about early on the rise of Samuel, this, this miracle birth baby, who is this point of light and hope in a really, really dark time in Israel's history where it just feels like there's just the levels of corruption and especially among the religious elite who should be pointing people towards God and they're doing the exact opposite. And not just not pointing people towards God, but facilitating all kinds of abuses. That's rampant, rampant and it's, it's uh, just... The landscape is pretty bleak, and Israel is hoping for some type of redemptive impetus, but it's hard to know where that would come from, and God sends this final judge, Samuel, who um, turns into a prophet, he, uh, and then eventually the people say, you know, we want to be governed like the nations around us, and early in Samuel, there's this theme of the people not being content to live under God's authority and rule. They were called to live under God as a nation. And they look around and they're like, we don't want to be the odd people out. This is weird. Like, we, can't we just have like a king and have like a normal governmental system and the same power structures that we see around us? Because that looks like legit. We do not look or feel legit. Samuel's like, that's a bad idea. You don't want a king. God warns them. They're like, yep, we want a king. So uh, Israel's first king is Saul. And in these last few chapters, we've seen uh, Saul's deterioration and ultimately his rejection of God. That while he gives lip service at times to God or tries to use certain religious rituals or patterns as a way to leverage the power of God for the sake of Israel, his heart is disconnected. He's not a, a king after God's own heart. He's willing to jump through some hoops, but really only to the extent that it doesn't run interference on his own sense of entitlement. And He's sort of growing farther away from God, and as a result, he's sort of driven by this weird paradoxical, he's very insecure, and so he begins trying to like accumulate more and more status and power as a way to signal to other people, like, I'm in charge, I'm the king. And in the last chapter, God decisively says to Samuel that he rejects Saul, and he's going to choose a new king, and this time he's going to choose a king after his own heart. God's going to do the choosing. They wanted to have a king like the other nations. God said, okay, here you go. Here's what it's like to have a king who rules out of ego, no humility, no, uh, no humility before God, before other people, just always thinking about how do I use my position of power to make my life better and then let the chips fall where they may with other people. God says, no, I'm going to do the choosing now. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 1, Oh, by the way, I got I gotta pivot from my normal, like, I'm going through a chapter a week. I just could not do that this week. There's too many uh, plates spinning, and then there's a bunch of weird stuff in the back half of this chapter that I needed a bit more time to research, so we're going to do just the first 13 verses this morning. 
The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So there's a lot there. God is, Samuel is, is genuinely heartbroken. He's like, really? After all that we've been through as a people and we gave the kingship a, a, a chance and it's really no better. Like, and he's heartbroken at Saul's lack of obedience and I'm sure just feeling incredibly dejected. But God doesn't let him sit in that. He says, that's not the end of the story. Fill your horn, ram's horn, with oil. That's filling it with oil is, is a posture. If you're going to go to anoint something, there's going to be something new happening. And I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, and I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now that's interesting, because up to this point, Saul has been willing to entertain uh, the fact that Samuel is a prophet from God. None of Samuel's words fall to the ground. But there's a tell here that Samuel recognizes that Saul has drifted so far away from God that Saul thinks the kingdom is his. And so Samuel's like, even if I brought word to Saul, I can't just anoint another king because even though God has rejected him, he will kill me. So that's giving you a not so subtle, not so small window into where Saul's heart is at now. Saul has transitioned to, it's like, this is my kingdom. And now Saul, whether or not he's said this, he's signaled that he is going to be on the lookout for potential threats to what he thinks is his kingdom. He doesn't see his role as a steward and as a servant, but as power that has to be held on to at any, at any cost. And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Take a heifer with you and say to Jesse and his family, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what to do then. And you're to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. He arrived in Bethlehem. And yes, this is the same Bethlehem Jesus is born into. So this is one of the places that Bethlehem shows up in the story. There's this not so subtle foreshadowing of a king who comes from Bethlehem, an anointed one. The elders of the town trembled when they see this old man Samuel coming towards them. And they asked Samuel, do you, do you come in peace? Why do they ask Samuel if, they, if he comes in peace? Do you guys remember what happened at the end of the last chapter? Remember Samuel sliced and diced Agag of the Amalekites? Really the only act of violence we ever see in Samuel's ministry, but it makes such an impression that the word is spread. So now when they see this old man prophet, they're like, this guy don't play games. Like, are you, have you come in peace? And he's like, yep, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves as a town and come with me to the sacrifice. So then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this is just like uh, for Bible nerds slash people who want to kind of realize, oh yeah, the, the Bible isn't a collection of stories like Aesop's fables. They are stories that all connect and tell one larger story. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So that is some of the linkages there in the biblical story. So when they arrive, Samuel saw Eliab, the firstborn, and Samuel thinks, oh, surely 
the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Bam. Picked him out. Obvious. But the Lord says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. The Lord, sorry, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, a lot of commentators, if you read uh, uh, commentaries on the book of Samuel, they will say chapter 16 is the turning point of the entire narrative arc in uh, the, the, the entire corpus of First and Second Samuel. But if chapter 16 is the, uh, the turning point, then this verse is the, the pivot point. Samuel, like Israel, he's got a set of qualifications. He's inherited them just from growing up, and you kind of realize the, the kind of people who make good leaders or who are sought after as leaders. And he relates uh, in, a, in a pretty unconscious and reflexive way those characteristics, and he just maps them onto what God's choice of a king will be. They're going to be tall, they're going to be dark, they're going to be handsome, they're going to be connected, they're going to be a firstborn son, obviously. They're going to be, they're going to have all the, all the signals, all the outward appearance of just having it together and what that looked like in that culture. But God makes it clear that that's not the criteria he's using. That's a criteria that Israel used. We want a leader like the other nations have. God says, I'm going to do it differently. And God communicates that he's not actually swayed by superficial characteristics. He, what he wants to understand is what is in this person's heart? What's in the seat of their will? What, are they, what, are they dry, what motivates them? What are they chasing after? What are they pursuing? If you think of the heart as the command center of the human person, not in the sentimental way that we do, but in the biblical way, the heart is sort of conceived of metaphorically as the command center of personhood. And in the command center, there's a throne. There's a place where it's like the thing that I want most, the thing that I'm building my life on and towards the most occupies that space. And God says, that's where I look. And it's based on what's on that throne and what are the intentions? What is everything in that command center pointing towards? That's the criteria I'm going to use. What motivates them? What's their character like? What do they love and what do they desire? And that's really instructive because this text shows us that we are so bad at discerning who is often in a position to be a really godly good leader. And the thing in the story that, that sorry, the, the principle that this story makes really clear is that we actually really do need God's help. And if you think this is just sort of like an Old Testament problem where you're like, well, now in the New Testament we have different criteria and we're led by the Spirit of God, so Christians and churches would never make the same mistake. We would never be swayed by looking around at uh, different cultural influencers or, or power brokers and say, ooh, that's the kind of pastor or leader we would like as a church, then again, brief study of history, brief reflection on probably your own journey, we'll, we'll see that that's not the case. Just think about what most, that's not fair to say, just think about the common traps that many churches and denominations fall into when they're looking for someone to be a pastor or a leader. Often, they reflexively look for people who are movers and shakers, who are charismatic, who can hold the attention of a room, who are aggressive extroverts, um, people who uh, meet and greet people well, 
and can sell the church in a community who are articulate and smooth and humorous and insightful and interesting in the pulpit. And none of those things in and of themselves are necessarily wrong. But when those get packaged together and then other considerations aren't even addressed, like what is their prayer life like? I'm not, I'm not throwing our church under the bus. I wasn't asked that during the, what did you call it? The interrogation. The interrogation. Yeah. <laughs> the, the interviews for me transitioning here. I can't, I can't think of the word, but it, we'll go with interrogation. Right? Um, does, does he enjoy spending time with his wife and family? Does his, does, or she's their spouse, does the pastor's family and spouse enjoy spending time with them? Does the pastor know how to weep and carry people's burdens? I mean, those, those are a few examples of things that I think the scripture makes it clear. Those are pretty important for leaders to be able to have access to and, and movement into. And yet those are things that just don't tend to fall on the radar. You get a lot of questions around what's your theological stance here and you need to articulate yourself. And, and again, none of those things are wrong. But it, again, it's interesting how every church Every denomination, every period in Christian history has a set of characteristics that we're like, oh, this is what's really important. And we often miss things that are hidden, that are under the surface, that will actually determine the trajectory of health for churches and communities. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. This is the next in line. But Samuel said, oh, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shema pass by, and Samuel said, nope, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So super awkward silence. <laughs> and then he asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's, he's tending the sheep. Oh, this is, a, this is an oof moment you know, for later for, for David to reflect on this. In his father's eyes, David is such a non-entity that even though the town is gathering to have a sacrifice to God and a celebration, no one bothers to invite him. And one of the most painful things that you can go through in life is to be unseen and unvalued by your parents or your, fam your family of origin. One of the gifts that families are supposed to facilitate in people's lives is a real and profound sense of safety and love and being seen and valued. Like really seen where the all the neat little things that make you you are, are seen and celebrated. And even though, um, even let's say in an ancient context where there were certain privileges for a firstborn male, and a lot of those privileges were turned into responsibilities later, but that everyone was to have a place at the table. Everyone was valued. And when you don't experience that, it really does leave um, a terrible wound that some people can spend the rest of their lives searching to fill. And when I read this 
this turn of phrase, like, oh, like, yeah, there's like one more, but he's out taking care of the sheep. I mean, that's menial labor in a first century or ancient, uh, you know, Near Eastern context. Uh, my, my heart goes out to David. My heart goes out to all the people who feel like they got that message growing up too. Black sheep of the family, not as talented as your older brother or sister, and not really seen and valued by your parents. That is, that impacts you in ways that really is, I, I think for a lot of people, you don't even begin to sort of realize it until later on in life. So Samuel says, we'll send for him. And we're not going to sit down until he arrives. Like the party's on pause. We're not doing anything until he gets here. So he went out for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. So David has similar qualities. It's not like he's this weird anti-mirror of, let's say, Saul or his older brother Eliab. He, he is healthy and robust and but he still isn't valued by his family. And it's probably because he's, he's the later born, he's sort of like the runt of the litter. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David, we're not sure, somewhere between nine and 13 likely. So picture my son Braden, you know, 10, 10 year old age. anoint him in the presence of his brothers, sorry, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. Now again, narratively, I want, I want us to sort of sit in the awkwardness of this moment. You've got the family of brothers with the dad, they haven't invited David, David gets called, he's being anointed as the new king. That is awkward for everybody there. It's awkward for Samuel. It's awkward for David. What does this mean? <laughs> it's awkward for all the brothers. It's awkward for the dad. And, you know, narratively what this passage and this moment really is trying to drive home is that God's ways are not our ways. And even though we're like, well, yeah, I know that. I've been in church. I've heard that before. But, but like, really though, like, God's ways are really not our ways. And often when God does something important, it, everybody there just feels confused and awkward. <laughs> and you're like, I didn't see this coming. I'm not sure what to make of this. And imagine the moment when Samuel like empties the horn and it's like, okay, we're done. And now let's sacrifice to God and have the party and if you're what do you what do you say if you're David to his brothers? What do the brothers say to David? The like weird family dynamics that have now been exposed to the Samuel say anything to Jesse? Oh, it's just like to me, it's such an interesting uh, psychological drama at play here. But it shows us, and this is a theme that gets repeated again and again and again in Scripture. Isaiah 55: My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts; neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's why in Proverbs 3, 5, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So there's this weird tension that we're not supposed to like shut our brains off and just, you know, not try and understand things. But it's to say, we have to recognize that when God is at work in our lives, in our communities, in our world, it often takes us by surprise. 
And so we shouldn't just say, oh, I see how this has happened, or this, this is where we need to go as a church, and I'm pretty sure, I can see how God's going to probably do this. And the blueprint uh, begins being built in our mind. We have to really guard against that. What we're seeing here is the kind of person God chooses, and the kind of person God wants to be king. Not that Israel wants, the kind of person God wants to be king, and that's someone after his own heart. And I love this principle that came out of one of the commentators that I uh, studied this week. They said, humans and Yahweh, God's name, humans and Yahweh are not normally on the same page. And they're not normally looking at the same things. The nations and Israel, looking at the nations, were like, we want a king that images what power and God-like status looks to us. And that is strength and might, military might, domination. But yes, I want the king to also be handsome and and beautiful and dynamic. And I want them to lead through worldly power and influence. And God says, I want a king that doesn't image these corrupted values in the world. I want a king that images who I am. And I want my people to want a king who images who I am. And that does mean a king who is strong and who is mighty and who is beautiful and dynamic, but it's not through the same lens. It's through the lens of they're strong and mighty and beautiful and dynamic because they serve. They leverage their power to be a benefit to those under them. They have faithful courage. They're willing to do what's right, not what's easy. They are faithful to me and to other people. The trust is high. And people know that even if it's imperfect, they stand in as a picture of what God does with power, which is always to come around and underneath and lift up the brokenhearted and the weak and to set them on a right path. And Paul picks this up when he's instructing Christians in the early community of Corinth. And he's picking up this theme of, man, you know, we would probably think as people in the church the, the people who God's going to choose to be a part of his family, to be a part of his gathering, his people, are going to be like the valedictorians of the world, the best of the best. But he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you had noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. And so when I think about the story one very uh, strong and clear message is this story should drive us towards two major cautions. The first is that we should be very, very cautious about judging other people and their potential effectiveness in God's kingdom and God's ways of doing things. It may be a person who you might never admit out loud But in your heart, you think, I'm not really sure what they bring to the table. I'm sure God loves them. But 
I'm not really sure how God could use someone like that. But if we find our hearts going there, we have to understand that that's a superficial uh, evaluation. And it's actually based on our own limited perspective. Because if God calls a person, he also empowers that person. And the second caution, so the first is not to judge other people's fitness for a purpose within the kingdom. The second one is that we should be careful if we go down a road where we begin to question our own ability and our own gifts for service and significance within God's kingdom. Where we say, well, I know how God could use someone like that. I know how someone with that kind of knowledge, that kind of skill, those kinds of looks, that kind of influence, like for sure. And I'm glad our church has those people. But you sort of write yourself off. You, you really you kind of even stop asking God, is there something you have for me to do? here and now, in this life, in this season of life that I'm at. You've written yourself out of the script. In a sense, you've put yourself in the place of David, but you've chosen it. You've said, I'm kind of a non-entity, like I'm, I'm the runt of the litter. No one's ever really seen or recognized me. I don't know why God would. I don't even hold it against God. Yeah, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't bring a lot to the table. I'm just humble, and that's just the way it's going to be. When we go to those places where we feel like we don't have much to offer God, we've, we've, got, we've got to confront that because that's also a superficial evaluation based on our own limited self-perspective. If God calls, he also empowers. We often fail to see the God potential in other people and ourselves because we're looking at the wrong things. And we think the things that will lead to prominence and status in, in the culture are the same things that will lead to prominence and stature within God's kingdom. And I can't get that way in the culture, so it's not going to happen in the kingdom. But the story of David is so amazing because it shows us that God sees things that we miss. God sees things that we miss about other people, and God sees things that we miss about ourselves. Quick story to close. So in one of the commentators uh, that I read, they were really impacted by the story that they had read uh, decades before in seminary. And it's a 19th century novelist, George MacDonald, book called The Curate's Awakening. Has anyone read it? The Curate's Awakening. Uh, Curate is like a, basically like an uh, Anglican or Episcopalian pastor or understudy of a pastor. So it's kind of like a clergy person, you, you know, just for the sake of the story, just think pastor. And the story uh, illustrates in a, in a pretty graphic lesson the point of this text, which is that appearances can be deceiving and we have to be really careful who we assume God is going to select and use for his purposes. So in this novel, there's a young Anglican curate who gets his first parish. And like so many ministers of the day, going into the ministry or congregational ministry was just sort of like a voc- one of many vocational tracks. Some people just kind of did it um, as a way of, they weren't necessarily feeling called or they weren't even necessarily believers. They just did it because it was one of the career paths open um, to men. And he's trying to find his way in the new assignment. And within the first year, he, uh, there's a skeptic in the community who basically keeps pushing him and says, you know, he's holding up the Bible and he says, come on, man. You don't, you don't really believe this, do you? Like, come on. And he's, he's, he's pushing this um, young leader along. 
And this leader named um, Thomas Wingfold, this pastor, he begins to really have doubts, and he begins to really wrestle and reckon with the fact that he's gone into ministry as just kind of like a job. He's like, I don't even really know what I believe about stuff. And through some soul-searching and agony, he kind of says, okay, I think this year has to be my last. I'm just going to stop and then um, leave the ministry. But before that happens, he falls into another crisis, which is because he's completely in it for the wrong reasons, he doesn't even really know how to prepare a sermon. So he's just been plagiarizing the sermons. He just takes other people's sermons, switches some of the details, and then preaches them on Sunday. But he gets a letter one day from someone in the congregation who says, are you plagiarizing your sermons? Because <laughs> I've heard these before. And he meets with this person. And he's like, this is it. I'm going to be exposed as a fraud. This is so brutal. And this parishioner turns out to be a certain Joseph Polworth, who is this um, tragically deformed um, man who, who has dwarfism. And what he does is he confronts Wingfold, this curate, and he begins talking to him, saying, why are you plagiarizing these messages? And that leads to a series of ongoing con uh, conversations, and Wingfold kind of confesses uh, to Joseph about the state of his soul and, and how he's a, a fraud and an imposter. And Polworth kind of keeps the conversation going. And as they talk, the curate realizes, I don't I don't even know who this guy is. He's a part of our congregation. Like, he's, he's a giant of faith. Like, it becomes very obvious to him. You don't get this kind of wisdom and grounding without having years under your belt of reading Scripture, praying, knowing God intimately. So, in a sense, Wingfold even feels like more of a fraud in front of this person with this obvious uh, physical uh, impairment. But eventually... Through these conversations, uh, Paul Worth leads the curate to a living faith, not just a commitment to the ideas of God, but a living faith in the true God. And what's interesting about the novel is that, yes, it shows the principle, the truth about, about a person is a matter of the heart, and we have to be very careful to not trust what our eyes or our instincts tell us, sometimes even about ourselves. But one of the sad parts about the novel is that when the pastor, when the curate set, announces to his congregation that in a sense, oh, surprise, your pastor, I just became a Christian and now I'm actually gonna like lead you in the way of Jesus. They're super pumped and happy. And when he brings Paulworth before them and says, this is the person who's been instrumental, they still can only bring themselves to, in a tolerant way, pity him because they see Joseph Paulworth as someone who should live alone quietly because, in their words, he really has so little to offer the world. And so it's this beautiful story of God's reversal and how, even as Christians, we cannot always be ready for it. We cannot always be ready for God to choose and anoint the weak and the lowly and those that aren't to shame those of us who are. Now fast forward another thousand years, there's going to be another king who's going to arrive on the scene. He's, he's not just an anointed one, he's the anointed one. He's born in Bethlehem. 
And in one of his first acts of self-disclosure, he goes to a synagogue and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then through his life and teaching, he's going to show everyone what God as king looks like, what divine power is for, what royal authority and love looks like in real time in the flesh, not as an abstract idea. And in the process, all of our human misconceptions of what a powerful, mighty, divine figure would look like gets upended. And then what this king is going to do, and this is maybe most remarkable of all, is he is going to invite each of us, each of us who are Davids, spiritually. We're spiritual Davids. We're forgotten, we're overlooked, we're weak, we're insignificant. We're altogether unremarkable. But he's going to point to us and he's going to say, I want you to come follow me. I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. I'm going to show you how to be fishers of men. I'm going to show you and lead you out of a small life and into something bigger and more important, a calling that is going to upend your expectations of who God is, who you are. Um, What does it mean to be alive to God in this world? And so today, through this story, hear afresh and anew the call of this Messiah, this anointed one, this king, turn from a life of self-centeredness and sin, and sin is doing what seems right in your own eyes, and start following Jesus down a path that's centered on him and his goodness and his truth and mercy and grace. And the Bible says that when we do, he anoints us with his spirit in order to empower us for the life that we were meant to live but couldn't access without him. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Let's pray. God, thank you for choosing us, for calling to us. Even though so many of us were overlooked and forgotten and left out in the pasture to live a small life, may you rebuke in the spirit of anybody here, young or old, any thought that the most important and significant years are behind them, that they are just a shepherd, just a boy, just a kid, just whatever the fill in the blank is, and may they turn to you in faith and receive empowerment to move into what you have them, have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand. Let's sing this song together.